Would you uh, pray with me as we come to God's word? This is from Psalm 119. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep them to the end. Lord, give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us, Lord, in the path of your commandments, for we delight in them. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promises that you may be feared and turn away the reproach that we dread for your rules are good and behold, we long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give us life today, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to... um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 23, and uh, as I thought about this several weeks ago, uh, my lovely family came back from New Orleans and said, Dad, we just heard a great sermon on Psalm 23. So I've picked one of, if not the most famous chapter in the whole of Scripture, and it's, it's a well-loved chapter, isn't it? Believers and non-believers love this chapter. It's on cards and placards. You see it in kitchens. You see it all over the place. Non-believers as well as believers love this psalm. If you think about the works of Shakespeare or uh, the works of a great classic musician and the beauties that we have in them, they're nothing really compared to the beauties that are contained in this psalm. So I've been thinking as I've been preparing, why why do people love this psalm so much? Why is it loved? And I was was thinking of uh, a time when I was back with my parents at my parents' home. My mom loves this psalm. Uh, My mother-in-law loves this psalm. And I was um, coming out of home late, and for several weeks I was doing that late. And in, in England, when you... It's still dark at around... It's still light at around 11.30 during the summer. And it was just, it was sort of dusk, it was 11.30, quarter to 12. And um, just behind my, uh, my parents' home is a, a lovely woods. And I heard an owl call. Um, and then I heard the sound of a bird, which sounded like it should have been during the day, singing during the day, this beautiful song. It was a nightingale. It was a nightingale. And it's a strange sound in the middle of the night to hear this beautiful a bird song. Charles Spurgeon says that this is the nightingale of the Psalms because it reflects our cry, our song out of darkness. And I think that's true, isn't it? So let's, um, you've just, we've just sung this together, but let's read this Psalm together. So I invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Psalm 23. And we're going to walk through uh, this Psalm with David, a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. 
You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the first line says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So in this psalm, you're sheep. We are sheep in this psalm. So I don't know if you've thought about yourselves as a, a sheep. If you, I don't know if that, you would pick that as a mascot for a sports team. And you're normally with sports team, they're tigers and falcons and eagles. I know Fisher are the bunnies. I always thought that was a strange mascot to be called a bunny. But sheep, to think of us as sheep. And this psalm isn't actually about the sheep. It's about the Lord. It's about the shepherd. And it's written by David, who was a shepherd. And it's a remarkable statement, really, that uh, he would say, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Of all the names to call the Lord, he calls him in this psalm a shepherd. Now, this is the God of the Bible, the God uh, who is to be feared, the God who is our judge. One day we'll all stand in front of him and be judged. He's the great creator. I don't know if you've seen some of those images uh, from the new telescope that look out into the universe that show not just one more galaxy, but millions more galaxies. He's the God who created all of those things. And not only did he create all of those things, he sustains them as well. He sustains them, it says, by the word of his power. He's sovereign over everyone's life. He hears all of our prayers at the same time, and he answers them. And he controls circumstances to bring them together in his providence to actually answer our prayers. And yet, David here calls him a shepherd. And when we go through the psalm, he's going to present him as a tender shepherd. It's also been said that the whole of the Bible is within this psalm. It could be seen as David's story of salvation because it takes David's story from life all the way into the house of the Lord where he will live forever. So here is a sovereign king. We might say that actually there's something wrong with David's theology. He's presenting him as a shepherd. What about other names? Why isn't he presenting his full character? It's interesting where this sits within our hymn book, within our song book. If you go back to the, the psalm before, which is Psalm 22, um, it presents, and it was written by David, it presents the Lord as the Messiah. It talks about him as uh, the Lord who suffered, the Lord whose bones wasted away on the cross, whose garments were divided. We see that as a messianic psalm written thousands of years ago, written a thousand years before the coming of Christ, yet describing in detail what Christ went through. David, in Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Christ by the work of the Spirit as he wrote it, understood who Christ was, that God was going to send his Son to redeem us from our sins. And then you can look at the psalm afterwards if you question David's theology. In Psalm 34, he's talking about um, Christ coming again. 
He's talking about his, he, he mentions uh, God being a creator, but also speaking about him being a warrior, being the king of glory and the Lord of lords, about his holiness, about his victory over sin in the future. That again, he will come one day to judge. So David's theology is sound. Psalm 23 isn't a reflection that he got God wrong. And yet, in this psalm, he presents him as our tender shepherd. Maybe he got us wrong. Are we really sheep? And people talk about, I'm, I'm actually a veterinarian, and I love sheep. My, uh, my father had a, a, a farm, was manager of a farm. They had 1,200 sheep. And I've worked on lots of sheep farms. I've worked on farms when we've gone to look for sheep that, are, that have escaped. Um, I have a friend, he has, a, he has a eight, about 80 sheep and a pretty small field. It's maybe about 20 acres. And I, I worked on, uh, uh, with Phil for a while. Um, every day, every morning and every evening, we went out into the field. It wasn't that big. Guess why we went out? To find the lost sheep. Now, it wasn't my farm. I knew the field really well. The sheep kept on getting lost. It, probably every two or three days, the sheep that lived there, this was their home, got lost in the field. <laughs> We'd find them at the bottom. We'd find them stuck in a hedge. We'd find them on their back, not being able to get up. This is you. <laughs> We're sheep. We wander. And once they wandered out of the field, they didn't know where to go. They'd be crying and couldn't get back in. No direction. No sense of direction. No inherent GPS. Completely dependent on us to feed them and to find them. Wandering, and when they started wandering, wandering even further. No direction. So that's us. So I think we know that David's theology on the Lord is true and right. And his anthropology, his view on us, is true and right. I think every animal, as we sung earlier, praises God in its own way. I think sheep praise God by being stupid. And Isaiah 53 said, we're all like sheep, we've all gone astray. And that Christ died to bear our iniquities because we have gone astray. So sheep, in their sheepiness, teach us something about us and teach us our need for a good shepherd. So what I want to do is, is walk through this psalm so that you might see new glories in Christ, that you might see more, more beauty, that you might see more excellences, greater than the works of Shakespeare, greater than the works of Bach or any great composer, that we as God's people see greater beauties in this scripture. And we're going to walk on this journey with this shepherd, David. We're going to walk and see the pasture of refreshment, the valley of hope, the table of abundance, and the house of communion. So let's see, as we see the pastures, which for David is the present life. In Psalm 23, he's not looking ahead to heaven only. The first part of the psalm is actually about the present life. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So the first few verses talk about his life now. Now we actually don't know when David wrote this. Did he write it as a shepherd boy? Or did he write it as a king? Is he looking back in his old age and sort of describing what his life is like? Or is he writing again by the work of the Holy Spirit within him to describe the journey that he's in the midst of as well? 
So we walk with him as a shepherd boy who knows actually what the shepherd's life is like and what the sheep's life is like. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So he's speaking here about the Lord. Who's he speaking about? If you look throughout scripture, you see uh, the shepherd being used to describe the father. Back in the Old Testament, Israel were described as his sheep, as his flock. And they saw God the Father as the shepherd. We know from John 10 that was read earlier, that Scott read, we see the Lord Jesus as our shepherd. It's also in Scripture, the attributes of a shepherd are also aligned with the works of the person of the Holy Spirit. He guides, uh, he leads, he comforts, he nourishes. So really the Lord is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it reminds us that as believers in the Trinity, that whenever we think of one person of the Trinity in our thoughts and on our lips, never far away should be the name of the other members of the Trinity. But this uh, here, it's the word Yahweh. And Yahweh speaks about the covenant-making God. And this is, this is the idea of, of God's covenant. I shall not want because of who God is, because of what the Lord has promised me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is the language of contentment, the language of satisfaction. Now, that's a strange thing, as I've just laid out to you, to talk about sheep being satisfied, because sheep are anything but satisfied. They live lives of uncertainty and lives of anxiety. If you see sheep in a field, they always have their heads up. They're like deer, always looking for where the next predator is. And again, as I said, directionless. So they're always restless, always looking for something better, always wandering. Isn't that like us? Always wandering, always looking for something better, never really content with what we've got, never really content with who we are, who we've been made to be, never really being content with what the Lord has given us internally and externally, seeking new things. So here it says, the members of the Lord's flock, not that you're going to have everything you want, but that you'll never lack anything, that you'll never be in want. You see, Scripture says that our affections and our desires are actually disordered. They're inordinate in magnitude, and they're often misdirected towards the wrong things. Scripture says the Lord knows what you want. Do the sheep really know what they want? They don't. So here it is that his, his satisfaction is not based on the enticements of the world and and. Uh, what he's looking at in 1 John 2, verse 15, 17, it talks about uh, we're enticed by the desires of the flesh, our pleasures, the desires of the eyes, what we see as we covet what's around us, the pride of life, significance, and success. They're the objects of our wandering. We think in many ways that those things will satisfy and fulfill us. Was David talking from his palace, surrounded by all of those things. He didn't say he's satisfied in those. He said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Remember the prodigal son who wandered off to find other things because he was discontent with what he had at home. And what does the Bible say? That he came back to himself. Remember the rich fool as well, laying up treasure for himself in heaven. 
In Luke 12, 22, 34, as that's described, Jesus says, fear not, little flock. Fear not, little flock. He recognizes that our wanderings and our searchings for contentment in the world are what sheep do. That's our sheepiness that does that. Jeremiah Burroughs, uh, who wrote a book uh, saying the, um, the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Isn't that interesting? The rare jewel of Christian contentment. He defines contentment like this. Christian contentment is the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise provision. In Philippians 4, 11 to 12, Paul said he's learned to be content. So it's okay. We're not suddenly content. We can learn to be content. That's part of our Christ-likeness, part of our sanctification. So it's okay to lament when things aren't going our way, as long as it doesn't turn to murmurings against the Lord. Contentment's missing in the world, isn't it? Contentment's the absence of worry and fear and anxiety. And what does the world struggle with, particularly post-pandemic? Fear and worry, anxiety. If this describes the, the Christian life, what a great blessing it is, a beauty of the present Christian life that we can say, the Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want. So whenever David wrote this, and if you look at different stages of his life, he had a rough life. If you look in 1 Samuel 17, it describes uh, David as a shepherd. And if you remember, he's going out. That's the chapter that contains his battle against Goliath. And he goes out. Do you remember what he was going out to do? He was taking sandwiches to his brothers. He was of a lowly state. A shepherd wasn't a great job. Are you guys happy with your jobs or discontent at your jobs? David didn't have a great job. He then talks about, um, he then gets ridiculed for being a shepherd. His brothers ridiculed him. So he didn't have good family relationships. Are you discontent with your family situation? He then, um, he then went out to, to, to fight Goliath. And when, when somebody said, how can you do that? Well, he said, as a shepherd, um, all the time, I used to see bears and lions, and they were carrying lambs in their mouth. So I grabbed them by the beard and take the lamb out of their mouth. The Lord provided me. The Lord helped me fight the bears and the lions, Goliath is nothing. He didn't have an easy life as a shepherd fighting lions. His was a life of of conflict and trouble. Even when he went on to be king, you see a broken life of adultery and sexual abuse that took place in his family, his family trying to usurp him. And David can still write, whenever he wrote this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He could look back. He could look today in this present life. He can look to the future and says, I shall not want. So where does your contentment depend? On whom do you rely for your satisfaction and your fulfillment? The Lord will provide all that you need. Discontentment in many ways is actually sin particularly when it leads to us murmuring against him. And we don't often call it that, do we? We don't often call discontentment sin. But 
Again, as I said, we learn contentment, but if we are not, if we're expressing distrust in the Lord's provision for us, that can be sin. Coveting, wanting what other people's people want in Colossians, he says that's idolatry. To desire all these things, to desire things that the Lord hasn't given you, he says it's idolatry, it's covetousness, you're breaking the Lord's commandment. So here we see even in David's brokenness, he can say that wonderful thing. And he, he gives us a bit more example, talking about the present, the present life and the Lord's tenderness and provision towards him. He says, he, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Again, the beauty and blessing of this present life. We haven't even got to heaven yet. We will later on in this psalm. But the sheep are prey animals. It's unusual to see sheep lying down. You might see your dog and your cat lying down content. Do you know why? They're predators. They don't fear much. Imagine if you were prey, if you're out there and there's a lion or a bear that's gonna pick you up in their mouth, particularly if you don't have a shepherd, there's lots to fear. And, sometimes, and our fear in scripture, our fear is not condemned in, in scripture. Jesus come and says to us, fear not, but recognizing that the world is dangerous. I know sometimes we tell children that the world is a beautiful place. There is beauty in the world, but to be honest, it's a terrible place, isn't it? There's sin and brokenness and sadness. The Lord will come back, but at this time, it's not a beautiful world. It's a world with beauty in it. Are our lives beautiful? Our lives are broken, aren't they? So here we are justified in being like sheep, in, in looking around and being fearful of many things. Not one thing, but of being fearful of many things. Even fearing God's judgment. The Bible says to fear, if you're not a Christian, to fear God's judgment. That's a thing you should be afraid of. Fear is a gift to you to draw you and drive you to the great shepherd. What do we spend? Sheep spend most of their time standing and walking around, looking for food, avoiding predators. When they are content, they lie down and they chew their cud. They enjoy the food that they've been given, that they've been provided now. Think too about Eastern sheep. I mean, this is written around, David wrote this, Eastern sheep in the desert. Very often the, the flocks and herds in that part of the country were nomadic. They were always moving for new pastures. It's not like living in the black gold around here or in you know, the riches of the grasslands where there's pasture uh, all the time. There was sparse vegetation. They always had to be moving. The shepherd would move them and protect them as he moved them. Who knows where the pastures are? Only the shepherd knows where pastures are. These sheep get lost in their own field. They don't know where the green pastures are. So he makes me lie down in green pastures. That's a, an incredible, if any of you work with sheep, it's quite hard to make sheep lie down. Actually, when we're working on them, we sort of turn them onto their haunches. So we sit them up so we can work on their feet. But in the Eastern Shepherd apparently used to create this cradle around them in which they felt safe. So in the pastures at night, they create a pasture or they create a fold. Jesus talks about that in John 10, about him lying across a makeshift fold and him being the gate into that. When they feel safe, they will lie down. The Lord knows what you need. 
The shepherd knows what the sheep need. The Lord knows what you need. He's infinite and eternal and unchangeable in wisdom. He knows those things. He can provide all that you need. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in power. He cares for what you need. He's infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in goodness. So be careful in your discontentment to not sin against the Lord. Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When our hearts are dissatisfied, we very often grumble and murmur at the Lord, and that can turn into bitterness. So contentment and satisfaction is a gift of grace to us, a work of the Holy Spirit within your heart as you know who Christ is and you rejoice in him. It's in opposition to the distracting, heart-consuming cares of the world. It's in opposition to the sinking discouragement we often feel when we don't get what we want. It's in opposition to our grumbling and murmuring, our vexing and our fretting that disquiets our souls. It's in opposition to our desire to avoid suffering for the sake of our comfort. So the Holy Spirit is the silent shepherd. As you submit and take pleasure in him, he defines your identity. He defines your circumstance. He defines your disposition. This day, in this moment, the Lord is sovereign over your life. Let's rejoice and be glad in him. The still waters are another picture of safety. Sheep have little legs. They can't go into very deep water without being swept away. And the wool captures air. They kind of float a little bit as well. So still waters are really important to them. I've had sheep where the water is dirty uh, in their pen and they won't drink it. They need fresh water all the time. If you don't change the water, they won't drink it. They'll dehydrate rather than drinking dirty water. They're interesting creatures, aren't they? So the still water is a picture too of refreshment. And we, we get another great picture here. This is kind of this outward circumstance. What about the inward circumstance? He says, he restores my soul. Now, that's, it. that's important because, I mean, again, we said this could be David describing his testimony to some degree because that's what happens actually at the point of salvation. The word restores is the same root word as, as repentance. It's a picture of, of turning back. But here, who's doing the turning back? Not the sheep. Sheep keep wandering and keep wandering until they're lost. The picture of sheep in scripture is of lost sheep and Jesus having to go and bring them back. So sheep don't come back. They're not homing pigeons. They're not like your dog that will come back eventually. Sheep won't come back. They need restoring. But also, it's, it's also not only this sort of, this, this turning back as well, but this, this giving of new life. This restoration is, is a revitalization of giving new life. It kind of can be used to describe the new birth. He's taken my dead soul and given me a new soul. Remember, Jesus said that to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The, the new birth, the coming to salvation, is actually a restoration of the soul from a dead soul to a live soul. 2 Corinthians 5 says, anyone in Christ is a new creation. So here, David could be saying, he saved me. 
but he's really saying as well, he saves me every day. He restores me every day. This is the present life. I keep falling. I do sin. I do reject him. I do complain against him. But he will restore you. He goes out for the one sheep to restore the sheep back to him, to revive your soul. And don't we need that? We don't need that once. We do worry. We are anxious. We are fearful. He can restore your soul, your mind, your heart, where you believe, where you love, where you make choices deep within you. He can do those things. The shepherd's tender role in this psalm is bringing the wandering sheep back home. If you wander and don't return, Scripture says you're probably not one of his sheep. I know non-believers love this, this psalm, but restoration of the soul is described. That's salvation. That's the point of believing in Christ, repenting of your sins and turning to him and the Holy Spirit indwelling you, giving you new life. So there might be a beauty to this psalm, but actually it's for believers. Only true restoration comes from Christ entrusting him as your savior as he died on the cross and took the penalty for your sins and gave you his righteousness. He'll bring back the sheep that are his. Remember the lost sheep in Luke 15 when he left the 99? And what did he do when that sheep returned? It's a picture of rejoicing. So you are going to wander. Think of the prodigal son. The prodigal son wandered but came back when he came to himself. But that was the working of the Lord bringing him back. Don't rebel against your shepherd. He'll bring you back. He's a tender shepherd. There's no sin that you've committed that takes you away from his goodness and his kindness. So John 10 speaks about his sheep hearing his voice, that he brings us back by speaking to us. In Romans 10, it says, faith comes through hearing and hearing the word of God. And he says, my sheep will hear my voice. He says, there are other shepherds, all the way throughout scripture, there are false shepherds. And we need to be careful of those false shepherds. There's multiple warnings about false shepherds. I'll come back to them. But everybody in some way has a shepherd. But it's his voice that brings us back to him. Do you know his voice? Do you love his word? Because false shepherds, it says in chapter John 10, verse 10, are here to kill and destroy and not to rescue you. So God's our shepherd. He's tender towards his sheep. He, in this present life, restores our souls. He saves us from death and destruction. And here he is, even though they wander, he hasn't forgotten them. So where have you wandered? Not too far from his grace. We're his sheep because of his promises, because of his covenant, because he chose you and he's revealed his voice to you. Sheep are only, there's only one good thing in scripture uh, about sheep, I like sheep, it's their ears. Sheep can hear, sheep have good hearing, but very often we listen to the wrong things. John emphasizes the importance of listening to him as his word. So as we continue, let's just continue with David, and as David goes, on through this psalm, he, he, he talks about being led in righteousness. And here's this, this kind of great picture of 
uh, sheep, and if you see sheep on a mountainside or you see sheep in a field, very often they're scattered. There's no order to them at all. When the shepherd comes into the field, you'll often see them start to align, coming together and going along a particular direction. And if you guys have done any hiking in places like Wales or places like Scotland, uh, you can look at the side of a mountain and say, I'll never be able to climb up there. And yet, as you go there, you'll see there are these paths that lead up the mountainside. And they're sheep paths. They're paths that sheep have walked on, that the shepherd has used to guide sheep. And when sheep walk, they walk on those paths. The lost sheep just wanders across the field. The guided sheep walks on these solid paths. It says in the Psalms that he'll set my feet on solid ground. In this life, we need paths of righteousness, don't we? We need guiding. The shepherd's a guide. The shepherd sets us on the right paths. Not our own righteousness, not the righteousness that comes from the law, but a righteousness that comes from Christ. It, it, this, this, is, this talks about the shepherd that leads. He walks along the path to guide you in living a godly and a full and an abundant life. In the same passage in John in which he says the false shepherd has come to kill and destroy, he says, I've come that you might have life and life abundantly. He walks you along paths of righteousness, paths of the right relationship with him, paths that are morally good, that are in line with his word, in line with him being, you being his people. He understands again that we have fallen, but he's provided these strong paths for us to walk on. And it's so important because what do our friends and our neighbors and our family and our colleagues and our classmates see? Do they see us living an uncertain and directionless life full of anxiety and fear? Or do they see us walking along the paths of righteousness that he's provided? Because he says, he leads me on paths of righteousness for his namesake. Because it's in line with who he is. We're his witnesses. We're different sheep. People are meant to look at us and say, I want that kind of contentment. I want that kind of goodness, that kind of rightness. I want that relationship with the Lord. And to be honest, when we look at the world, that's not what we see. That's not what Jesus saw. It says but in Mark 6, uh, it says, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. In Matthew 9, 36, he says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. All the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says that people without a shepherd are lost and scattered. That's why he's given us a church as well. In Numbers 27, he talks about Moses leading Israel as their shepherd. In Jeremiah 23, verse 3 to 4, he says, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep. In Ezekiel 34, he says, The false shepherds feed themselves, and they, the weak, become food for predators. In Zechariah 10, the sheep are in trouble because they have no shepherd. So there's a need for a shepherd. There's a need in our lives to be part of a church, to be accountable, to walk alongside with one another. He's put us in a flock. 
Where do you find out paths of righteousness? In his word, through his church, through counsel from one another. And as we walk along with each other, we are the Lord's presence to each one. He puts our feet on solid ground that are his paths of righteousness. But he's the only one that knows where they are. He's the only one that knows what they are. The sheep don't find them by himself. The sheep didn't create them. Jesus came to be man to show us how we are to walk as people, to to show us what the spirit-filled life is like. Christ's life is a picture of true humanity, good humanity, beautiful humanity, effective and and, um, fruitful humanity. Psalm 40, verse 1 to 2 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of a miry bog and set my feet upon a rock and made my steps secure. We need the paths of righteousness, the paths of Christ in our lives. So here he is, the present life. Our journey through life, he restores our soul when we wander. He provides us with rich pastures. He provides, he lets us lie by still waters. He sets our feet on solid ground. But he also knows that there are periods of time which bring more fear than other periods of time. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So this is kind of an incredible statement as well. It's talking about death. We've been talking about the present life, but he doesn't um, move away from recognizing the fear of death. As Christians, you're going to be afraid when it comes to dying. It doesn't say that you won't fear, but he says you should have courage when you approach those times. Up to now, he's spoken in the third person, He's revered to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as he does this, he does this, and he does this. Now he says you. He's turned into a prayer. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no either. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's this beautiful picture of this believer crying out in his moment of distress and fear. He's now imagining himself not as the shepherd, but as the lamb. David's the lamb in the mouth of the bear and the mouth of the lion. That's what death is, isn't it? Aren't we afraid to be consumed with death? For eastern sheep, the most treacherous paths were those that led down into the valley. And sometimes in some of those areas, apparently the movement between pastures means you go down this little chasm where you can't even see the sunlight. They're hemmed in, it's so dark. It's the valley of the shadow of death. It's kind of this picture of darkness. But what's, what's the shepherd's provision in this moment? Is himself, the presence of the Savior. As you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he walks with you. David's thinking about what death would be like. Have you thought about that? What are you going to be like at that moment of death? It could come tomorrow. Are you going to be alone? Or are you going to, is your savior going to walk with you? Compared to the fears and anxieties that you're suffering now, facing death is a greater one. Maybe 
Some of you are there already. And in a sense, David says we should always walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In some way, it's present, isn't it? That shadow is near in some way. We've lost loved ones. We've thought of our own death. We've had illnesses that remind us of our mortality. And of course, we can forget it. We can medicate ourselves with the pleasures and glories and idols of this world. We can try and deny or cheat death, but it's coming. You may face your own death or maybe facing your own death today. We should consider it. There will be a day when you walk, will walk through the valley of your own death. If not today, you will. Everyone's going to die. But you also can walk through the valley of somebody else's death. And he says here, he's just said, we work paths of righteousness for his namesake. We should bring hope into situations of death. The dying shouldn't be isolated away from the church. We should be visiting people who are sick and visiting people who are dying and, and coming close to them. We should be an ambassador of the great shepherd. The sheep without a shepherd, they need a shepherd even more in the valley of death. And here he's saying, I will fear no evil. I have to learn that. I have to, to grow in my trust of the Lord so that when I come to death, I'm not going to fear it. I've held the hands of non-believers as they are approaching death. And there's a spiritual battle that goes on at that time. There's fear that goes on at that time. He says, your rod and your staff will comfort me. This is a dark place. The nightingale cries out of the dark. This psalm cries out of the dark with hope, the hope of the gospel. But he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod was a weapon, is a weapon still, in some African countries and Middle Eastern countries where they fight off, David fought off the bear and the lion, the evil one. But the staff is used for direction, for guiding in the dark as well, when you can't see, when you're confused and life seems chaotic, his word can guide you. It's his presence. For the believers, the promise, satisfaction, and fulfillment, and safety, and security of life can be true in the valley of the shadow of death as well. But for those of you who have other shepherds, guess what? They run in the valley of the shadow of death. They're not going to walk with you. Christ knows because he died for us. He went to the cross to die for us. He's walked through death. It says in Revelation, he has the keys to life and death. He's the only one who's been through life and had victory, been through death and had victory over it. He's the one you want to walk with you, isn't he? It says in John 10, it says in John 10, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus' word, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door that climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. In verse 10 to 15, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd laid down his life for his, the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and, and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. If you're listening to other voices, if you're listening to other counselors, they will run from you in the valley of the shadow of death. He says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own. So for the believer, while there is great sadness in death and fear, 
He gives us courage to walk through it by his presence, by his work in our hearts, by the work of others, other believers walking alongside. As you face illness and death, Christ is with you. And he is the only one who's walked through death. He's the only one who can deliver you from the sting of death. He's the only one that can have victory over the evil one with his rod and his staff. So the presence of the shepherd brings us courage and it brings us comfort and it brings us guidance. So don't be afraid to be there with a big stick when others are facing death. They need you. You're the presence of Christ for them. So we walk through death with courage, confidence, comfort, and assurance. Why? Because on the other side, we've left the valley now and in verse 5, You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This is a picture of the wedding banquet. This is resurrection life. We've walked through death. We're now on the other side. And what's happened? In the East, in the East, when you're taken into a household at a table, you are the honored guest. You're given this bountiful feed, food. They take olive oil and they anoint your head. They take your wine cup and they purposefully overflow it to show the abundance. Now, Noah works at Chick-fil-A. If you spilt the milkshake, you're in trouble. But here, spilling the wine is good. It's an abundant table. So this is a picture of what Christ has done, preparing a table for us, a banquet, a wedding feast, the supper of the lamb. He was raised from life and is now ascended and waiting for you. It's a picture of the Supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19 and 7.10. Written 3,000 years ago, you know, 1,000 years before Christ, he describes the wedding supper of the Lamb before Revelation was even written. So it's this wonderful picture. It reminds me of the upper room when Jesus prepared a table for his disciples and washed their feet and served them the bread and the cup And here he does the same, waiting for you, the resurrected life being in his presence. There's a strange little bit of the table in Psalm 23. It says, in the presence of our enemies. And different commentators think different things about this. This could be that these were your former enemies who are with you in heaven, that now your relationships have been restored. It could be that. More likely, it's probably that your enemies, that the non-believers can see you at the table. And in scripture, uh, there's a couple of uh, scriptures that say that heaven gets a glimpse into hell and hell gets a glimpse into heaven. Luke 16, 19 to 31 talks about Lazarus the beggar and there's this conversation taking place between a beggar in heaven and a rich man in hell as though they're talking to one another. Isaiah 66, 24, right at the end, it says that while you're in heaven, you can see, you can glimpse people in hell. Shouldn't that drive us to want others to come to be at the banquet feast? To think about those that we didn't witness to, that we weren't uh, his ambassadors to? For the believer then, it says, goodness and mercy shall follow me in this present and future life. As we, as we, because of what Christ has done, that we've received his righteousness, that we possess his grace that he's given us to his word and his church, the Lord's Supper, baptism, all the things that he's given us, the graces of this life, that we should praise him. Because as we look behind him, we see, what do we see? We see goodness and mercy behind us. Have you seen those big ships that once they've gone, you look behind them and you see 
the wake that they've left. That's what it should be like after we leave somewhere. Goodness and mercy is left in the places we've been because in your workplace, in your school, because mercy and goodness follow us all the ways of our life. I heard, I heard a pastor say, goodness and mercy are like the sheepdogs. They keep chasing us to make sure we're in line. I think that's very nice. Might be taking the analogy too far, the metaphor, but mercy and goodness is his sheepdogs keeping us. And so after we've gone, we journeyed with David through, David through life and death. We now go, we've gone through into the resurrection. And where do we end up? The end of his journey? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the end of our journey. True contentment, the fullness of his presence. No longer sheep in the desert, but actually at the table in the presence of our Lord, of our great shepherd. No more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more enemies. Isn't that where you want to be? To live, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Christ and for your word. And we thank you that you are our shepherd king, that we can be satisfied in you wherever our status in life. We thank you, Lord, that when we have wandered, and when we continue to wander, you will restore us. We thank you that you lead and guide us, guide us in paths of righteousness and that you walk with us even in our greatest struggles, our greatest fears, uh, even in the shadow of the valley, uh, in the valley of the shadow of death itself. We thank you for the banquet that awaits for us. We thank you that Christ chose to, to live with us, to live a perfect and righteous life, to die with us that you vindicated his death by raising him from the dead, that now he sits and that we'll see him again and that we will live in your house forever. I pray for those who don't know you, Lord, today, that they would hear your voice through your word, that they would turn to you, that they would turn away from false shepherds and see you as their true shepherd. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.